Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey y'all, today I have a special treat for the educators who follow me. A few weeks ago, I offered a free webinar for teachers in pre-K through eighth grade where I talked about what's going on behind the behavior and how to stay curious and figure out what students are struggling with so we can shift our mindset from thinking these students are giving me a hard time to these students are having a hard time. So on today's podcast, I'm releasing the full recording from that webinar. So if you would like access to listen again or to share if you missed it, to hear it and then share it with colleagues, this is your chance. At the end of the webinar, I talk a little more in depth about some of the teacher training that I offer, that this webinar is really just a snippet of that information. So stay until the end and you can hear more about my online course for teachers, but also I have recently opened my 2024 calendar for school trainings, both in person and virtually. And you just go to learnwithdremily.com slash schools for more information. I am Dr. Emily. If you haven't met me um, already virtually, or um, some of you may have met me in person if I've come to your school, but I'm a former school psychologist and currently a child psychologist, but um, my passion is has, and has always been with schools. Um, I have been in private practice for the last um, about 12 years, and I have felt the need over and over again to get back to my school roots and getting back to teachers. But what I do know is true is that um, parents and teachers are, you know, doing so many of the same things just in a different setting to support our neurodivergent kids. So our kids with an autism diagnosis, with those with ADHD, learning differences, asynchronous skills. So we're going to touch on some of those things today, which present a lot of the time as behavior. This is the time of the school year where 
many, many teachers start to see anxieties rise to the top. So everyone's getting kind of comfortable in their classes and you're still trying to figure out relationships and trust with your students, but you may be starting to see some behavior. So I hope today leaves you with just some ideas about what could be going on behind the behavior and getting curious about not only a child's anxiety or sensory overwhelm or kind of general mental wellness and health, but also their skill development. So I'm really passionate about talking about the cross-section of a child's developmental skill and um, what we're expecting of them and the situation we have. And I feel like over time, I've learned so much from parents and teachers and then from kids when I view it from all their perspectives of we have to not put it all on the child or all on the teacher or all on the parent. We all have to figure out what um, is going on and how we can collaboratively work together to make that better for the child. So we are going to, um, if you haven't already, drop your location, classroom, school setting in the chat. I will. I want to go back and see who was able to join um, this is recorded, so if this is helpful and you want to share it with colleagues, just forward it to them after you get um, the recording in your email. And so think about, um, as we move forward, who's coming to mind as I mentioned some of these things. Um, I have always felt like um, we think of kids in different age ranges or different grades and honestly, we really um, just need to th be thinking about them as skill levels. So I created most of my resources for elementary teachers, but it really is adaptable down to pre-K and up through eighth grade. I feel like the goal of high school is like almost independent learning and getting them ready for that. So I'm more of the mindset of helping kids and teachers and parents work together to become lifelong learners. And you'll see how some of the asynchronous skills and anxieties that can happen can interfere with that. So how do we help students thrive? This is a question I always come back to. And I think what it is, is we have to shift our mindsets from reacting and trying to manage the behaviors that happen. And of course, we have to do that sometimes because we don't see it coming. We didn't predict that that child was going to respond that way. But if we can find the patterns, we want to shift from reacting to student behavior or child behavior to connecting with students by utilizing their interest and supporting their skills. And of course, to be able to do that, we have to know them and we have to build relationships with them to figure out what are they into, what sparks their engagement, and then where are they in their skill level? And that could be all over the map, depending on what we're talking about and how do we support those skills. So many of you know, if you've followed me, I talk a lot about Ross Green. Um, if you haven't read any Ross Green, I encourage you to. His work stemmed out of talking about um, a lot of aggressive behaviors that students show up with in school that gets them often kicked out of school, which we want to avoid because we need kids to be learning and feeling connected and engaged. But he often will say, kids do well if they can. He truly believes that not all, I mean, that kids don't want to do this on purpose. They're not trying to give us a hard time. They're having a hard time. So think about what happens to us when our own engagement tanks, when we're expected to do something that is above our skill level, that's a, a higher skill than we have. You know, if we were sitting in a classroom in Russia. I have no Russian language skills. My, I would look distractible. My um, attention would go down. You know, I would probably feel pretty anxious. And so 
it's hard to stay engaged. It's hard to do what we're supposed to do. It's hard to learn when something is too hard for us. And I'm not just talking about academic learning. I'm talking about the sensory overwhelm, anxiety, learning in a group, um, all of the different things that you might think about when we think of about structured um, traditional education. I love this image. I use it often when I'm talking with teachers because you are asked to deliver a curriculum. I mean, you are asked to do that. And I know in my years as a school psychologist, that was the the main concern from so many teachers I consulted with was I have to teach them, but I can't because they're not available to learn right now. And so think about thinking about teaching as an art form, which I know you do, but I know so many people who ask you to deliver this curriculum don't get that. So my hope is that we can um, work with what you are supposed to be teaching, but also I can guide you with the skills of what's going on with a child to help them be more available to learning. So what is neurodiversity? You know, I'm going to be talking about things that are specific to neurodivergent kids, but these these things are true for all children at all different ages. So neurodiversity is just our differences in terms of learning. You know, some we may think about this in our generation as being a visual or an auditory learner, and we have differences in the way we learn things. So we are all neurodiverse from each other, but some of us are neurodivergent. So what does that mean? So the actual diagnoses that might come along with being neurodivergent are things like ADHD, autism, any type of learning differences in reading, writing, or written language. Giftedness is considered under this umbrella because it is asynchronous with the traditional, you know, norm bell curve of of actual average learning. And then twice exceptional is going to be kids who are gifted and have a learning disability or autism or ADHD. And so when you think about any of these um, neurodivergent learning patterns, what they all have in common is asynchronous development. So a high skill in one area, a lower skill in another area, and again, not just academic. So this could be a child that's high in math ability, but is not able to put on their own shoes or is high in reading ability, but is not able to calm themselves down. Um, And again, thinking through what their skill level is, not necessarily how old they are or what grade they're in. We have to teach in some sort of organized way of like everybody's about at this level. But of course, within that, as you know, as educators, that's what makes teaching so hard is that you've got all of these brains looking at you and they all are learning in a different way. So a quick word about diagnostic labels. So two ways to, of course, think about this. And the medical field, we have actual diagnostic labels that we have because of insurance purposes, and they're kind of the medical model of like, this is a diagnosis, and here's how we treat it. There's also the educational classification system um, where children will receive an IEP or a 504. There are only 13 of those classification, and there is uh, are lots of different diagnoses in the medical model. So all that said, Children are still the same. We just have all this language we've created to organize it. And so I will use lots of different language. I may use autistic child because lots of teens and young adults prefer 
disability first language because they feel like autism is a part of who they are. Um, I will sometimes say autism spectrum or diagnosed with autism. Um, I believe kids need to understand who they are and then and then just like anything else in their identity, they get to describe it later. So um, just knowing that what I speak about is not necessarily because a child has a certain diagnostic label. I more so am speaking to what is that child's skill level and what is that child's ability to emotionally regulate? Because that's going to allow them to be open to learning. Yes, we need labels to gain access to services, but you know, we don't have to um, wait until a child has that label to support them. So if you go deeper into my online teacher course that I have, I talk about lots of different neurodivergent learning patterns, but I just want to overview two today that are the most impactful to learning in my work that I've seen as a school psychologist and in private practice of kids coming to me being stressed about school, and that is executive functioning and anxiety. So we don't like diagnose kids with executive functioning weaknesses, but most autistic students have executive functioning weaknesses, students with ADHD, and students with anxiety have trouble focusing, which of course then makes them have executive functioning weaknesses. But what executive functions are, are the, that ability to plan, plan out what you're going to do, organize, initiate, focus on it, and then monitor how you're doing. So these are things, of course, affect absolutely everything that they do in school. I've seen lots more executive functioning weaknesses in middle schoolers post-COVID. It's like they missed their opportunity to practice all these things in fourth and fifth grade, and I'm hearing a lot of that. And then I'm seeing a lot of dysregulation in early elementary kids because they missed their preschool experiences. So just thinking about that as a, our culture of the exposure some kids missed just because of the pandemic. So with anxiety, we have to think about first understanding where it comes from and then understanding what it looks like. Um, so in general, you know, there are kind of two ways that, and some some of us have both of these, but there are kind of two ways that anxiety comes about. One is just genetics and brain wiring. Some of us, our temperament, our personality, um, we are just wired to be more anxious, more cautious, more hypervigilant people. And then there's also an impact on um, our early attachment with caregivers and any trauma that has happened. And this could be you know, trauma with a big T, as we say in therapy world, which is like some sort of acute traumatic event that we think of, or trauma with a little T, which is, you know, a less of a traumatic event in terms of like, it's not neglect or abuse or assault, but it's doing something every day that's really hard. And even trauma with a little T could be something like an autistic student having to go to school and pay attention all day. And it's hard for them, the sensory overwhelm of that. So we have to think about where anxiety is coming from, from for a child to start understanding the behavior that they're responding with. As children get older, some of them are impacted by that external pressure of time. And you can tweak this sometimes and kind of try to figure it out by when you release the pressure of time, does the anxiety go down? Some kids will have an internal pressure of perfectionism that usually is a coping strategy from some sort of either temperament or trauma about trying to control their environment. If I'm perfect, then I won't make mistakes and then I can avoid the anxiety. So we have to figure out teaching that child to do things kind of good enough and then helping them get used to that. 
And then for some children, anxiety looks like this girl in the picture. But for many children, anxiety looks like behavior. It looks like arguing and avoidance and ripping things and being mad about stuff. Anxiety and anger are very closely related, especially in children, because they haven't developed the attention span, the self-control, the emotional regulation, and the insight to figure out what it is. And so when we just discipline that behavior, we often are ignoring the deeper rooted concern that they're feeling of feeling anxious. So we need to think about those those skills and then think about that cross-section. So when anxiety and asynchronous skill development intersect, and that's asynchronous skill development is what's going on with most of our neurodivergent learners, um, we need to, I, I usually think about it this way. So kind of throw age norms and grade norms out the window for just a minute and think about what is that child's skill level? And then what am I asking them to do? And again, this is not just academic. The the most straightforward version of thinking about this is, okay, what is their reading level? And what am I expecting them to read? We're all pretty clear on like, we wouldn't expect a child to do something way above their academic level. But what is their ability to attend in a group? And what am I asking them to do? Or what is their ability to independently keep up with their belongings? And what am I asking them to do? So when we have distance between the expectation of the whole group, usually, and the child's skill level, the distance or the size between that is usually the size of a child's anxiety. And so what we can do is we can either support that skill level by having strategies to prop it up a little bit, slowing things down, chunking tasks, we can get into that later, or adjusting the expectation, which All educators I've ever worked with are very nervous about this suggestion, but I don't mean forever. I don't want you to lower your expectation on your kids, but I want you to think about if you are in a situation or if your student's in a situation that's so overwhelming to them, they cannot even get started. They don't even know where to start. All they're doing is managing their stress level. They don't have the energy for the learning. So initially adjusting expectations to capture their engagement and to capture what it is that they can do in that situation, then we're going to get moving in the right direction and help them start to enjoy learning a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to highlight a few behaviors you might see and just plant some seeds, hopefully, and get you thinking about what could be going on behind the scenes for that child. Okay. So why don't students listen? This is like the main, the first thing we need them to do is listen, right? Well, we need to make sure they're understanding what we're saying. And young children, it's absolutely possible they could have some receptive language delays. Um, They could have body regulation needs where they need to move their body in order to listen at the same time. They could have sensory or emotional overwhelm. For instance, they can listen to you one-on-one in a quiet room, but they cannot do it in a, in a group or in a crowded classroom. They could have some executive function overwhelm or weaknesses. So this might look like they're zoning out because what you're saying is really hard for them to remember auditorily. And so I call this kind of going to your happy place in your brain. They're going to start thinking about something that's more entertaining to them. And so they zone out and they're not listening. Or they just could have a lack of interest in the content you're teaching or in the activity. And this is very true 
of autistic children. And so um, the world out here is, is overwhelming and hard for them sometimes. And their interests that they're thinking about in their brain are very interesting. So sometimes it's just a lack of interest in what we're doing. And then we want to work on pairing our engagement and increasing in their interest to what we're trying to teach them. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com tracker to get started. So why don't kids get started? So again, this one really falls heavily usually on executive functioning weaknesses. Do they even know what they're supposed to be doing? Do they have a plan? Have they thought through just the first thing? Do they have their materials? Do they even have any interest in it? So those are some things to start thinking about it. It's very possible that perfectionistic kids feel like failure to get started is easier than I tried my best and I failed. So if you have a perfectionistic student, we want to think about, is there are they choosing the lesser of the two evils with anxiety? I'd rather get in trouble for not doing it at all than do it and it not be what I want it to be. Um, they could be fatigued or have a low mood. So think about differences in time of day. Think about differences in days of the week. So um, any patterns to fatigue or low mood, and this is where parent relationships are really important. And if a child has had, you know, not the best night's sleep, it's helpful to know that. And so, especially in young children, but I would say in neurodivergent children of all ages, if they have not gotten enough sleep, if they're if they're not eating well, if they're having any bodily, you know, tummy troubles, headaches, anything physical going on, it's it's possible that that's distracting them from focusing and getting started. And is their anxiety or sensory overwhelm in the situation that's taking all their energy, that's zapping their energy and they have nothing left over to do the work that's in front of them? Okay, so why do students argue and negotiate? Again, this can be anxiety. Sometimes it can just be anger and needing control, but I would argue that most needs for control is also anxiety. Some autistic students 
absolutely have this very strong sense of justice. It is the way that the world makes sense to them. And if that person didn't have to do it, then they don't want to either. So this comes up a lot for siblings too. Or if, um, you know, if I need it this way, then that person shouldn't have to do it that way. So all these differences they start to notice might be fuel for them to argue. So they could be grasping for control as a coping strategy for anxiety. So think about what is it that they're feeling out of control on. Usually we grasp for control when something else feels overwhelming. And so to a child, that could be the room is loud, or that could be, I don't know who to ask for help when I have help. So when did they feel out of control? And sometimes, like I said, about getting started, it's easier to argue than to get started, or it's easier to take the bad grade for uh, take the zero than get started. So maybe that's what's going on. Or also, are they negotiating something that worked last time and they're trying it again? So arguing and negotiating wear us down as adults, right? So think about if you've ever said, okay, fine, go do that thing, or okay, that works for me. If it ever worked and a child remembers that, we may not remember it as the adult because we're trying to do so many things. But if you feel like you may have inconsistently said yes, they may be trying to get it one more time. So that's a a time for us to think about, okay, if I really want a strong boundary with this child, I need to think about being consistent and letting them know when it will be a yes. Because if they keep hearing no, keep hearing no, that usually starts to weaken our relationship with kids. And so thinking about when can it be a yes, and then start to talk with them about that. So another way we'll see behavior is a child just shutting down. And so this is like a fawn response where instead of you've heard of fight, flight, or freeze, this is like the I give up response. So something could just be too hard, too long, too overwhelming. It could be too hard to focus on. Again, the expectation is a lot higher than the skill they have at that moment in time. They could be emotionally or sensory overwhelmed. Basically, just something is too much. They have reached the the area in their emotional dysregulation where it's actually more intense than anger. Like usually if kids are angry, but they're still in it with you, they can argue or push back on something. The shutdown response is usually even more intense. Like it's the, I give up. I don't even have the energy in me to put up a fight on this one. And so we, we want to be actually a little more concerned about our shutdown kids um, even though they may fly under the radar a little more because they're not pushing back behaviorally. But if you notice a child is shutting down a lot, is sad a lot, that's actually, to me as a child psychologist, a little more concerning than a child who is actively trying to get their way because they've got the energy to do that. So we need to pay attention to those kids as well. And then what if a child is aggressive or destroys things? So you know, arguing and negotiating is verbal, what I would call verbal aggression, destroying things like ripping up tests, or, you know, kids can wreck a classroom, or they can, you know, throw things across the room if they're mad about it, or they can rush and charge another kid or an adult if they're really, really in a stress state. So one thing that I do go into much deeper in my online course is the stress state versus intentional behavioral response. They're tricky to figure out sometimes with neurodivergent kids, but usually 
this goes back to that Ross Green quote of kids do well if they can. I've never met a kid that enjoyed being in a stress state, that enjoyed being aggressive. Usually when kids are in this state, they've lost control of their nervous system. They're highly anxious or angry. They're trying to regulate and they just can't. So they're, it could be that they're in sensory overwhelm. It could be... Um, that they are trying to, you know, get that input. Lots of young kids can still be very active in K through three and their body's moving a lot like a preschooler still, but they're bigger. And so it can be harder to figure out their need for movement once we've asked them to sit in a seat all day, but they still have the nervous system regulation developmental level skills of maybe a younger child. So we need to think about what is their body seeking and then we need to think about what's going on socially around them. Sometimes it is a perfect storm of all of these things. You know, kids can feel um, overwhelmed and defeated and embarrassed or a kid, another student has said something to them. So there are lots of things that can lead to a storm of aggression. Um, often, though, it is a stress state. Some of it may be intentional in terms of um, I'm so mad I want to, you know, seek revenge on this kid by pushing their stuff on the floor too, or something like that. That's a little bit more intentional than a stress state. Um, but those are nuances that um, we would need more time to talk about, to figure out. So I wanted just to share this. I love this visual. I did not create it, but I, I use it often of thinking through um, a child's arousal level and also your arousal level as the adult. So learning can really only happen when our arousal level, meaning like our energy, our, our dysregulation, our emotional regulation in our nervous system is in that green zone at the bottom. And then once we get up to fight or flight, this is where I was talking about like the arguing, the negotiating kids are pushing back, but they still have the energy to push back. And then even higher than that is this freeze or shutdown. And we want to be even more concerned about those kids. And this is the difference in us as adults between like feeling anxious about something, but going on with our day and feeling depressed and we can't get out of the bed. So obviously we're more concerned about like not even being able to engage with our stuff than we are about feeling anxious and going through the motions. Obviously we want to help feel better help everyone feel better for all of these. But um, those are just some of the differences and the level of intensity that's going on behind that behavior. I love this quote, and I always try to share it when I talk with teachers, that from a neurobiological perspective, the position of the teacher is very similar to that of the parent in building a child's brain. Both can enhance a child's emotional regulation by providing a safe haven that supports the learning process. This holding environment optimizes neuroplasticity, allowing for new learning. So your relationship with students is the holding environment. And yes, there's curriculum to teach. And yes, there's lessons and to learn in terms of social lessons and independence lessons and executive functioning lessons. But you already have the power right there in the classroom to be that holding environment and let the rest come. And so over time in working with teachers and parents and kids, no matter what kind of problem is going on, if a kid feels like their teacher gets them, that is going to be a better prognosis than all of the work that I've done over the last 15 to 20 years. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about mental health and anxiety, and then um, 
I want to make sure we have time for questions. So what I mean when I say mental health for kids is I'm really talking about their ability to emotionally regulate. And when we think about like just child development and how our emotions develop, but also how our intelligence develops, young children are not having, you know, problem solving intellectually. They're not having cognitive thoughts about their emotions yet. So, so much of what happens in young children is behavior. You know, babies and toddlers are very behavioral because that's just all their emotions coming out, right? Then as kids get older, they start to be able to reason with things. They start to argue, they get language, they have motor skills to move around. So when I talk about mental wellness, I think about that stability and emotional regulation that has to be there in order to then take risks with learning. Because if you think about it, learning is a very vulnerable experience. We are asking kids to come and do things every day at school that they may have never seen before. They may have never um, tried it over and over again. Some of them may have never worked in a group. So if they're socially anxious about people looking at them when they're learning, it's a very vulnerable experience. And it goes beyond just, you know, being nervous to stand up in front of the class. There's some children that are just nervous to learn in a group. And so when you add some of the social anxieties and social weaknesses and executive functioning weaknesses and learning weaknesses that so many neurodivergent kids have, you can see how just the school building in general would feel anxiety provoking to some kids. So whenever I talk about the emotional development of neurodivergent kids, I often like to start with just the emotions of how in young children and all of us just in regular neurotypical human development, because so much of this is just the same, but big kids still need our love and regulation and connection. So think about babies. So babies first show their emotions related to their physical needs. They need to eat. They need to sleep. They need to poop. They need physical contact and snuggles. We all know how to do that. We are wired to rock the baby, to pick that baby up and rock the baby. And how do we know how to do that? It is in us. It is a part of nature, right? So as kids get a little older, we, we can tell when a young child, an infant, is either feeling safe or feeling stressed. Those are kind of the two emotions young children have. I'm safe or I'm stressed. And so they don't have the language yet or the motor skills yet to solve their own problems. So all they have is showing that they feel content or that they feel stressed. And so as caregivers, we then naturally co-regulate, which we download our nervous system onto them and we rock the baby. This is, you know, the role of play is all about co-regulation, throwing a ball, that rolling a ball back and forth, playing with toys. That is all co-regulation. Like I'm here, you're here, we're here together type of feeling. And that's how kids, as they get older, continue to feel safe. It's like, oh, this is my safe person. I feel content. It's predictable. They're going to feed me. They're going to play with me. They're going to change me. All those things feel very predictable and help kids feel safe. Well, safety and stress over time just evolves into more mature emotions. So feeling safe has to be, you have to feel safe and therefore be able to engage with what's around you. Because as I mentioned, 
engaging in learning is a vulnerable experience. So you have to be surrounded by that feeling of this person's got me. Even if I make a mistake, even if I don't know what I'm doing, I can trust my teacher to help me figure this out. And then the stress, of course, will evolve into that overwhelm, which is pretty much the same thing, but can look very different in a kid with lots of language and motor skills who can show behavior compared to a baby who's just going to cry. And we absolutely know how to meet their needs. So when overwhelm is too high in a child or there's not enough engagement, that's where we're going to be met with behavior. So we have to start figuring out how to turn down the overwhelm how to increase the engagement. And it is always a balance between those two. That's the moving target. That's the art of teaching and of parenting and of helping kids figure out how to get to know themselves. And I think so many of us as adults feel like, I don't even know how to do this for myself. Like I know when I'm overwhelmed, but I may not realize it till it's, I, you know, and past the point where I should have taken a break. So in thinking about this balance of skills and expectations, Start to think about the impact of an asynchronous skills that a child may have, a weakness that they might have, and how it looks when it's paired with that standardized expectation that you're asked to deliver that curriculum to them. So again, the skills are not just academic skills, and students will start to know their differences. And when they do, we want to be able to say, yeah, I've noticed that too, but this is how we support it. And did you notice that you're really good at this thing over here? I'm not good at that thing. I'm I'm better at this over here. And so starting to talk about neurodiversity, and that's, I have a whole lesson on helping kids understand the neurodiversity of each other in, my, in the online course that um, sometimes I present in person too, to schools to help with building a more inclusive community. And um, and then helping kids with their self-awareness, which leads them to self-advocacy and empowerment about feeling confident about their skills. Yes, their skills might be developing at a different pace than their classmates. They may struggle with something that another kid doesn't. But if we can help them feel empowered that, okay, I need support with that thing, but I'm really good at that thing over there, that will help teach them self-advocacy advocacy and help them trust themselves because they've heard us trust them on some of these things. So a few strategies to leave you with are to think about when something is overwhelming, usually we lose language first. We lose the ability to listen and we lose the ability to express, at least with a calm voice, what we need. So incorporating visual work plans are often part of our success when helping kids regulate and know the patterns of expectations. Um, and look for patterns of success. When is this child always able to do it and why? Why are they able to do it? So much of my consultation with teachers, and I know this is just because of the medical model, the traditional education system, we are trained to come in hot about the problem. What is the problem? Well, I, I, I hear you. I always, we start with the problem, but I really quickly want to hear when is this child successful and what's going on that makes them successful? How can we get there again? And how can we widen that window of success so they're feeling more and more successful? Sometimes we just need to minimize the sensory demands. 
We need to add interest to what we're doing. And then sometimes with executive functioning, we need to show them what done looks like. So what I mean by this is imagine your art, you know, your art teachers will say, this is the final product. You know, it might look very different if you're like, this is what an organized cubby looks like, or this is what your desk needs to look like, or this is what the class looks like when we come here. Show them what you mean and what you're looking for, what done looks like to help them visualize, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And then we're always going to be tracking data, but I have a few tweaks to that. I always hear from teachers, I can't figure out the trigger. I can't figure out the pattern. So there's usually always a trigger. It's just that sometimes it's internal and we have to talk to parents. We have to sometimes talk to kids if they can explain it to us. Um, We have to look for that pattern of dysregulation. Notice when they can do it. And this is how we get curious and keep track of it. And then keep tracking of all of this behavior in small moments of progress and also privately so that we can come up with a plan for success rather than pointing out to a child what they're doing wrong. And the goal will always be to build supports and independence at the same time and you're balancing this. So remembering all kids have asynchronous development, but some kids have very asynchronous development. So just because they're very ahead in math doesn't mean they'll be able they'll be able to remember stuff. Um, if they are um, if you're getting resistance or avoidance or meltdowns, something is too hard. So stay curious about that and um, adjust. Just keep adjusting until you figure out how to show them how they can show you what they know, because kids know all kinds of things. Sometimes we have to figure out how to get them to show it in a way that works for them. So I mentioned a few times that a few of these ideas are from my online course for um, elementary teachers, but also it's adaptable for pre-K up through eighth grade teachers. So if you want to keep learning more, you can check out the Neurodiverse Classroom course. So my goal with creating this course is stems out of all the consultations I've had with teachers over the years and all of the, um, just the ideas from mental health and the ideas from education that I feel like we need to put together to help our students thrive. So I want you to feel like you can help your students feel safe to take risks advocate for what they need and take ownership of their education. So I want you to think about if you, um, you know, sign up for this course, think about it like an investment in your students and your classroom and you, because you have forever access to it. I'm sure I will revise it in the future as things happen and you would always have access to it. The lessons that are covered are, um, I go all through in much more detail, the neurodivergent learning patterns, how anxiety impacts learning, We talk about you taking care of yourself as an educator um, and educator mental wellness. And then, of course, part of that is strengthening collaboration with parents. So making sure that you feel like it's this is hard stuff to talk about when a child does something aggressive at school. It's hard to talk to parents about this. I've been the parent on the receiving end of that. And I've been a school psychologist. I've been, you know, in my private practice, helping people with that. I've been on all sides of the IEP table. Um, And so I hopefully can share some ideas that I think would resonate in that category. Um, And then 
I mentioned building an inclusive classroom because I think there's so much we can do not only to work with the kids that are struggling, but with their peers to build inclusive communities in their classrooms. And then, of course, a deeper dive on supporting student behavior with um, scripts that I use to coach teachers on ways to actually respond in the moment when things get really hard. So you will learn building your knowledge on all the neurodiverse needs of students and how that cross-section um, occurs with mental health impacting learning, strengthening relationships with students and with parents, and then being able to set up your classroom and relationships with kids to incorporate their interests and incorporate supporting their strengths to help everyone feel um, like a more inclusive environment. And then everyone who um, takes my course automatically gets to join the Facebook group if they'd like to. There's a private student-only Facebook group um, that you can come to anytime you want with questions or challenges or wins. I always like to talk about what is working and to, to share that with everyone as well. And then um, the course is six hours of professional development. So once you've completed it, you just email me and you'll get a certificate of completion. I hope y'all enjoyed this replay of my free webinar for teachers that first was aired on Zoom a few weeks ago, but now is available forever for you all to come back and listen to. If you want to keep learning with me, just go to learnwithdremily.com slash teachers. If you're interested in bringing me to your school, my 2024 calendar is now open and you can inquire for more details at learnwithdremily.com slash schools. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily at the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.